Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. All right, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, and I'm really excited about this topic. A huge shout out to the AeroDigestive team for allowing us to take their spot and talk about a great collaborative that we've developed with that team. We're going to be talking about esophageal atresia today, care through the ages. Uh, We have a couple of surprises throughout the, the talk. So without further ado, I want to get started and introduce our moderator and our host for today. It's Dr. Murray. As we all know, Dr. Murray, she is the president of the medical staff. She's also the director for the Center for Airway, Voice, Swallowing Disorders, um, and uh, director of pediatric otolaryngology. So Dr. Murray, I'd like to kick it off to you. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Fink, and good morning, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. We're gonna tell you about some exciting things that are afoot between the aerodigestive team and pediatric surgery. Uh, Our title is Esophageal Atresia Care Through the Ages. And that title means two things. Uh, First, we're gonna go through the care of patients with this complex disease process, a little bit of past, uh, a lot of present, and then a lot of future. So we're gonna go through the ages, that's the bulk of the talk, and that's the reason for this title. The second meaning is that we're gonna talk about this disease process in a bit of a new way. We're gonna talk about it as a chronic disease that affects patients, of course, in their neonatal period, we know about that, but that affects them from infancy to toddlerhood to adolescence and on through adulthood. And that's a bit of a new concept um, for us. So that's what we're gonna talk about. Now, uh, who are we? Oops. Who are we? Uh, You know who I am, Uh, welcome. Um, We're also gonna be joined by Dr. Baker, who's gonna talk to us about the GI aspects of this disease. Um, Dr. Leslie Nod, who's gonna talk to us about surgical aspects of this disease. Um, and Dr. Chris Fink, who's going to bring us home and talk to us about the future and some real nice innovations. We, but that's not all. We have two surprise guests with us. We have um, Ms. Marge Zubik and Ms. Susanna Ludwig, who are both adult patients who will talk about their lived experience with esophageal atresia. And we really appreciate them being here and sharing their stories with us. So what are we going to do? We're going to briefly talk about esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula as a disease process. I think most of you are familiar with that. I'll do a brief um, discussion of the history of care. And then the bulk of the time is that we're going to describe basically the marriage, if you will, between the aerodigestive team and the pediatric surgeons and the NICU and all the people who take care of these patients um, to look at uh, innovations in care, to look at uh, care with a team-based model, to look at surveillance and preventative care, to look at clinical pathways, and then research and development. So just to step back a moment um, and talk about the air digestive uh, division, we've been around for 12 years now at Connecticut Children's, and we thank you all for your support and your uh, patience and allowing us to grow. Um, This is a picture of uh, just last week. We did a triple scope. And this is a nice picture because you have Dr. Zeisler, who's the lead from gastroenterology. You have Dr. McLaughlin, who's the lead from pulmonology. And that's our wonderful coordinator, Becky Strong. We couldn't do it without her. These names are on the page because um, this is the group, this is the core of aerodigestive. And this is what we do for patients. But 
also to remind me to remind you that although I'm not going to talk about ENT today, this may be the first Grand Rounds ever that I haven't shown you an airway video. I'm so sorry for that. I'll show you more next time. I'm not going to talk about ENT diseases today. I'm just going to carry us through. We're not going to talk about like swallowing a lot today. We're not going to talk about our, our speech language pathologists are not going to come on today. And our pulmonary doctors are not going to come on today. That's not because these patients don't have trouble with those. They do, but we're concentrating on the esophagus today. And so we'll bring them in for a few of this uh, later on. Um, so if you think about the air digestive team and all those disease processes, what child might need this team the most? What child might have interrelated issues with breathing, swallowing, growth, nutrition, reflux? And the answer here is the, the esophageal atresia patient population. So as you know, it's not a common disease, one in 4,000 live births, which leads to about close to 4 million births per year. And this institution currently, uh, we get anywhere from one to three patients born per month. Um, so we have a good experience uh, with these patients. We get referrals, we get older patients as well. Um, and so, uh, so we, we, although it's not a common disease, we see it a lot and these patients need a lot from us. Um, just briefly into the history, we've only had a surgical treatment for this disease process for 80 years. The first surgery was performed in 1941. The, a lot has changed over, those, over that time, a lot. And the mortality rate has decreased from about 100% to very low these days, depending on the disease type. Um, so we're in a good place uh, today. Um, so what we're gonna talk about today is again, the marriage of the uh, pediatric surgeons and the air digestive team and the NICU. And um, we formed a, we, the speakers today, many of us are on what we call the task force to try and sit down and work out how are we gonna take care of these patients? How are we gonna work this out using the resources that we have already, the research that we know, the new research that's coming out and how are we gonna merge? And so the task force is on the left, uh, the esophageal atresia collaborative, which is what we bring you today, uh, is way too big to fit on one slide. Um, so I've, I've tried to put people's names on there. I forgive me if I didn't, um, but this is, this is the group who is gonna be taking care of these patients um, and we're grateful to all of you. Um, so briefly, what will happen, and Dr. Baker will go into this more, we, the new thing we're going to do is we're going to meet these patients as a team um, at birth. So pediatric surgery, ENT, GI, pulmonary, speech are all going to meet the baby and the family and establish the expectations, really, which are that we, this is a chronic disease. And we're here for them as a team through the ages of the child. We then pick up as an outpatient using the resources of the air digestive team. We will go to the OR together for endoscopies as needed. We will follow pathways. We will perform surveillance. We will transition these patients as adults. And you'll hear more about that. Um, and that's the end of my introduction. So with that, we'll move to uh, Dr. Baker. Thank you. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Um, uh, for uh, the next few minutes, I'm just gonna speak uh, a little bit about the uh, data that uh, uh, Dr. Mari just previously mentioned, uh, supporting kind of prevalence and survival rates, as well as um, talk about the uh, immediate complications and long-term complications, uh, specifically involving the esophagus in patients with esophageal atresia, um, and really kind of highlight the importance of close monitoring um, uh, for their entire lives from a multidisciplinary approach. Um, uh, ultimately, this is a major contributing factor of why we started the esophageal atresia collaborative and therefore 
uh, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about the specifics of uh, the standardizations that we uh, implemented here. So next slide. Um, so uh, to begin with, uh, I'd like to just speak a little bit more about this patient population. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, there we go. Uh, so um, uh, this is a uh, study uh, that was done in Italy from 1982 to 2012. Uh, they monitored uh, or collected uh, 1.4 million. Um, oh, shoot. Um, Oh, sorry, I thought I just clicked out of it. <laughs> um, uh, they collected, uh, followed consecutive newborns from 1982 to 2012, uh, looked at isolated esophageal atresia patients, um, that uh, those are patients that don't have any associated congenital um, uh, uh, additional diagnoses outside the esophagus where non-isolated are additional congenital abnormalities, including cardiac, gastrointestinal, urinary, musculoskeletal, Prevalence they found were similar and roughly at around one per 10,000 births. Um, uh, interestingly, the, non, the isolated esophageal atresia folks um, uh, do have or have classically had uh, a good uh, survival rate, but those with non-isolated esophageal atresia, um, they found from 1981 to 1996, um, had uh, uh, unfortunately uh, decreased survival rate as they got older. Interestingly, from 1997 to 2012, that uh, survival rate improved, and that was thought to be due to um, uh, improved care of cardiac defects and critical care, ultimately suggesting that uh, more patients are really reaching adulthood now and that this is really uh, now considered a lifelong disease. Because of its long-term nature, uh, there are some uh, potential post-operative comorbidities and complications. Um, I won't go through the entire list, but you can appreciate that there are multiple um, uh, facets of this. Uh, we'll obviously focus a little bit more on the ones below uh, as they pertain to the esophagus uh, for the next few slides. Um, one in particular is the anastomotic stricture. This is just an example of this on an upper GI study, um, uh, uh, the top being towards towards the pharynx and the bottom being towards the stomach. Uh, as you can see where the arrow is, there's a little bit of a narrowing from that stricture from the anastomotic site, uh, which can uh, uh, happen uh, after the surgery immediately or later on uh, a few years later. Uh, this can uh, present as regurgitation of food, dysphagia, uh, partial obstruction, inability to swallow foods, uh, and subsequent, subsequently needs to be intervened on. Um, as far as uh, uh, this can be, you know, uh, initially after surgery, but uh, there are additional uh, complications that can last throughout adolescence and adulthood, esophageal dysmotility being one, uh, as well as uh, gastroesophageal reflux. Uh, disease. Um, so gastroesophageal reflux disease in young infants uh, can mean uh, not necessarily esophagitis, but can have uh, associated uh, uh, complications in the form of in, uh, inadequate waking or respiratory issues along with uh, reflux symptoms. Uh, but additionally, when kids get older, we think about calling it gastroesophageal reflux disease when there's a presence of esophagitis. Um, this is a uh, large retrospective study that looked at esophagitis in children with EF, EA and TEF um, uh, from in 2016. Uh, they looked back at the surveillance endoscopies of these children at different time points. Um, and, uh, 
Sorry. And from this table, uh, the thing to focus on is the different levels of esophagitis, grade one being mild, grade two being moderate, grade three being severe. Um, roughly at any time point, patients had uh, a 36 to 43 uh, percent uh, possibility of having esophagitis, um, with 16 percent of all patients in the study at any time point having moderate to severe esophagitis, and 60 percent of those being diagnosed with moderate to severe under three prior to being three years old. So um, definitely uh, something that is uh, increased in this uh, particular patient population. Uh, the difficulty becomes that uh, there can be some complications uh, with GERD. Um, early complications can induce anastomotic strictures. Esophagitis, as mentioned before, can be present, uh, as well as failure to thrive due to symptoms, oral aversion, uh, or if any uh, of the other complications contributing to that. Um, and late complications, uh, uh, including dysphagia, Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous cellular change uh, called metaplasia in the esophagus, which can develop into esophageal cancer. Um, uh, so the difficulty with pediatrics, um, as well as you'll see in adulthood, is that gastroesophageal reflux disease, specifically esophagitis, um, can be asymptomatic, um, meaning there can be underlying esophagitis without noticeable classic symptoms that we think about. So um, the need to uh, intervene in a standard uh, manner is important. <clears throat> Sorry, I think these slides are a little bit off. Sorry about that. I'll just continue through. Okay, so for uh, long-term complications of GERD and why it's important um, is uh, in this is an adult study showing about a third of asymptomatic again, showing about a third of asymptomatic patients uh, uh, had some mucosal abnormalities and uh, suggested an increased risk of Barrett's esophagus. Uh, this study um, contacted adult patients who have a diagnosis of esophageal atresia for an elective upper endoscopy. Uh, they found that at roughly 40 years old, 13% of all these patients had metaplasia on their scope and uh, calculated a four fold higher increase uh, of the possibility of uh, metaplasia than the general population. Um, unfortunately, there is some variable data out there too. Um, uh, other studies suggest an increase, even larger increased risk than general population, while others suggest a little bit less. But nevertheless, there seems to be an increased uh, risk for these patients in the long term. Um, so with that in mind, uh, we uh, really developed the esophageal atresia collaborative um, in, for the importance of knowing that these patients have a lot of potential complications. They're growing older. Um, they are more at risk for uh, developing esophagitis and subsequent Barrett's esophagus and subsequent potential cancer. And so, um, as uh, Dr. Murray mentioned before, uh, we uh, established this collaborative. And really, the initial meet is for all of our members of the uh, collaborative to meet the families in the NICU prior to discharge, whether or not they have active uh, issues going on. Um, uh, additionally, once they're discharged, uh, which is uh, the next uh, minute or so, I'm just going to focus on these two things, uh, is the outpatient approach, um, both from a uh, scheduled outpatient clinic in the multidisciplinary area digestive, esophageal atresia team, as well as our interventions in the operating room. 
Um, so from a clinic follow-up schedule, because the importance of following up with them closely, regardless if they're uh, having symptoms or not, um, all of our patients after their discharge uh, will be seen uh, by their operative surgeon two to four weeks after their discharge. Um, uh, three months after their discharge, they'll be seen in a multidisciplinary area digestive clinic uh, with all the subspecialists as well as with uh, and our surgeons as well. Um, and then from there, uh, we uh, plan to see them uh, uh, in the first year of life every three months, in the second year of life every six months, and then annually after. Uh, that will be with general. That is with general surgery and GI. Um, and if they have any active symptoms, uh, other uh, members of the collaborative will join. Um, last slide is just to focus on kind of what we are standardizing as far as our interventions based off of some of the data that I presented to you today. Um, we uh, recommend or we will start uh, patients all on anti-reflux medications up till a year of life. And because of that uh, initial concern for esophagitis and the long-term effects, um, have at least three uh, planned endoscopies uh, with biopsies um, at diff three different parts of uh, uh, three different time uh, points in their lives first being at one year old uh, with, with potentially a pH impedance probe that uh, characterizes reflux a little bit more, another at 10 years old, another at 20 years old, and when they transition to adult. We have, um, uh, and then additionally, if there's any other symptoms, obviously we'll intervene if necessary. Um, uh, from there, we have developed uh, an algorithm, which I'm not going to go into detail uh, with, but uh, it is a little bit more uh, complex than this, but this is uh, the general thoughts. Um, uh, there are some standardizations out there, the one being from our National Pediatric Gastroenterology uh, Society called NASPGAN uh, in 2016, uh, set this practice guidelines. Unfortunately, uh, the recommendations are really based off of expert opinion due to lack of data, and therefore a standardization of uh, through throughout multiple hospitals is really needed. Okay, uh, thank you, Dr. Baker. Um, our next speaker, again, we're so pleased to have Marge Zubik, who was the first patient in Hartford to have esophageal atresia repair in 1949. Uh, take it away, Marge. You're on mute. Uh, Nicole, can you unmute her? I got it. Sorry. Okay, thank you. I'm calling from cold and snowy Maine, but I was uh, in Glastonbury where my parents were. Um, I was born on January 28th, 1949. And for two days, I guess I wasn't able to keep any food down. So my parents had to make the decision to uh, on the 30th to uh, have my surgery to repair it or to have a feeding tube put in. And I've talked to a couple people that just felt that my mother especially just didn't want to risk, uh, didn't want to have the, uh, the feeding tube and was going to go with the risk. I believe they knew at that time no one had had survived from this. So I had the surgery and uh, I was telling them when we were doing introductions, um, I became a famous little baby. And they said that I had more men visit me in the hospital than I ever will in my life. That's what my mother told me. So it always made me laugh. And uh, I guess it was quite, I don't know how long I was in uh, the hospital, but it was several weeks. My brother, who was four, just figured out he wasn't getting that baby sister that he was told about, but I eventually got home. Um, my mother assumed I'd have a great big scar 
down my chest and, of course, was very surprised because there wasn't much hands-on with parents, I don't believe, in hospitals. And as I understand, she brought me home only to find a big scar on my back, not on my chest. And uh, I've never really had any problems with it. I'm looking at all this medical follow-up that you're going through now. And, and, uh, but I, I really never asked my mother a lot of details and things about it, obviously, because everything was working and scars on my back. I just forget about it. So, um, when I was 20, I had to have a lung x-ray to work in the food industry. And they said, Oh, why is one of your one of your ribs is missing. And I was like, really? And it turns out they had to had to cut the rib to do the surgery on my esophagus. So um, I didn't, like I said, this is just kind of family history and there wasn't much said about it. Um, I haven't really had um, complications, although it's interesting as I'm listening to the doctor there, I have developed GERD in the last 10, 15 years, and I'm on Pentazerol, Pentazerol, I guess is the name of it, Um, but it has been at times, um, but nothing I can't control or anything. They've often, I always ask my mother what they think caused it, and something, I mean, they'll never know, but she may have she had a fall in like December and I don't know it. It sounds like it was just reattached. It didn't, I mean, I, this again is hearsay, but I didn't get the impression that it was too short and they had to pull it down. Cause I've been reading some of your stuff. So they reattached it. And I tell you, I've been seven, I'll be 74 next week and I've been using it well. And uh, I did have one time when I had a, they did do a scope because they wondered if there was blockage and everything and it didn't seem to be. So uh, occasionally I will feel like things are slowed down and I just stand, sit up straighter and have water and things go down, but I've never had any, you know, problems that I know of. Um, Another thing was looking at the list of uh, side things. I've always had a cough that'll clear a room, even when I'm not even sick. When I was in kindergarten, I barked like a dog, and I saw that coughing that uh, Dr. Baker had on the side. I just never would have thought it was related, and it may not be. So that's my my long, short tale. Well, uh, thank you so much, Marge. And um, again, we really appreciate you sharing your story. Um, uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk afterwards about the cost. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. No, I don't expect any medical opinions now. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. We got you. We're going to, we're going to take care of you. (laughs) The least we can do. Um, so, um, and it's, and you know, I think that's really interesting that part of your story, um, just makes me think about the resiliency of our patients. I mean, we try to make everything better for them and there's some things we can't and they just learn, you know, so you sounds like you learn to maybe reposition yourself a little bit and then things go down. That's yeah. that, those were your words. And I, and we see that and uh, we thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, Pleasure. So, thank you. So um, next up uh, we're going to, we're going to introduce Dr. Oh, sorry. I think we were both doing that. So next up, we're going to introduce Dr. Nod and now we both did it again. <laughs> Dr. Nod is going to tell us about uh, the present and uh, some of the future and a little bit more about the esophagus. Thank you. My only disclosure is if there are problems with the slides, it's my fault, not Dr. Baker's or anyone else's. 
So I'll share a little bit more about the NASPAGIN guidelines that Dr. Baker mentioned and how we're incorporating that into our practice here. They do mention the routine surveillance for even asymptomatic patients, which we're incorporating, but also a multidisciplinary approach, which we've started with our esophageal atresia collaborative. Also, standardizing care was also something noted in their 2016 guidelines. So we're doing that on many fronts, which I'll share, and I'll, I'll skip the intro slide here uh, since I'll go into more detail later. And a future endeavor that I'm excited about, not at this moment, but soon, I hope, is the transition of care model. That was also one of the NASPAGAN recommendations uh, in their guidelines for the management of esophageal atresia. So we've standardized our perioperative care. I don't expect you to read this protocol this uh, on the right of the screen, but this goes into detail how we manage our patients from birth, before surgery, during surgery, to the degree of how we document the surgery, the type of esophageal atresia, what we find on uh, measuring the gap between the two ends, uh, bronchoscopy, and then postoperative care so that we standardize what we're doing. And across the board, if we're standardizing that, it helps us also study quality for our patient care and so we can make improvements. And it also makes it more streamlined for all of the other uh, caregivers and providers for our patients. Even with discharge planning, we have a standardized way of following up with our patients, as Dr. Baker has mentioned. We've seen in our operative note, we now have a template in Epic to help uh, all of our surgeons. There's a bare bones one, so they can still use the, the language they would like, but it has the essential elements. And same for our clinic. We're starting an esophageal atresia surveillance clinic uh, for some of our patients that you know, may have not been seen for a while with surveillance. And we can go through all of the body systems and all of the problems that they may be experiencing, like a chronic cough that our esophageal atresia patients have, and they say, yeah, that's just me. That's just normal. Um, we can help look into that more once we ask some specific questions and let them realize, hey, there's something we might be able to do as a team to help with that. One of the, uh, there are two projects I'd like to share. Uh, Connecticut Children's has been uh, a leader in a group called EPSN, Eastern Pediatric Surgery Network. And now it's, it's growing every year, it seems, but now it's 19 member hospitals, mostly on the East Coast uh, and a little bit uh, expanding a little bit more centrally. And uh, we have uh, two studies looking at our uh, soft gel atresia patients. One is a surveillance study. Um, and this is one that I lead. And right now we're in phase one where uh, the NASPAGIN guidelines have been studied. There are a couple of surveys that look at that and they're not widely adapted in the U.S. In Europe, they're more so uh, adapted. So I wanted to survey the East Coast surgeons and gastroenterologists and see what do they know about those guidelines? How do they practice? And so that's what I'll share here. Next phase is that we're developing a retrospective database to objectively know how people practice. When do they get their surveillance endoscopies? What are the findings on pathology? Those, I hope, will help standardize our process moving forward amongst the multi-institutional, with a multi-institutional study. And then for phase four, we can study our patients prospectively, and that will be what develops our evidence-based practice guidelines. As Dr. mentioned, the NASPAGAN guidelines, although good, they're mostly expert opinion. That's because there's not strong data to help guide us. So we hope to be able to generate that stronger data to guide how we manage our patients in the future. So the survey uh, surveyed about 181 physicians with a 77% response rate. And the majority did agree with uh, the NASPAGAN guidelines, even 80% that agreed that endoscopy should follow a set schedule. 
despite that, 80% believing that in the survey, only about 36% uh, say they perform an endoscopy regardless of symptoms and only a quarter follow a set schedule. So there's a discrepancy between what they would like to offer their patients and what they actually do offer their patients by their own report. And the modes of surveillance are, are multiple. Most commonly were review of symptoms and endoscopy that could be with or without a biopsy. But it is recommended that a routine biopsy is performed to look for some of the histologic findings that are not always grossly visible to the naked eye. We also found the timing varied of when these endoscopies were performed. And only uh, about a quarter of physicians followed the NASPGAN guidelines for timeline of endoscopy. So we mentioned there's not... Uh, there's a discrepancy between the physician guidelines, what they would like to practice, and actual practice, surveillance methods. Most of the institutions do have an aerodigestive clinic. So if they do not have a specific esophageal atresia team, they have the ability to uh, create that multidisciplinary care for the patients. And then the holy grail will be when we get our evidence-based practice guidelines after we uh, develop our prospective database. One of the other exciting projects is led by Dr. Fink, and she'll share more about her basic science later, but this is looking at the long gap patient. That is a subset of patients that has a very complex disease because the gap between the two ends of the esophagus is very long. Often you cannot get them together at the first surgery. It may require delayed surgery or staged surgeries. Along with that, they have more complex disease and problems related to it, including a higher incidence of acid reflux. You can imagine if you're stretching the esophagus to put the two ends together, there's tension. There can be more complications even with the esophagus afterwards, and we see that. So she studied this and found amongst our EPSN institutions, the demographics of the patients that we treat are similar. So the cohorts here on the East Coast are similar to what we see nationwide, as are their complication rates. Most of the surgeries are delayed, a delayed operative approach, and she found that the technique of the repair was variable, but the documentation was also suboptimal. We could do a better job at documenting so that we can study our outcomes and help advise our care moving forward. The length of stay for these patients is usually several months, uh, and that's a lot of economic burden, not only to the patients, but the hospital systems as well. And here's just showing in the our EPSN cohort, which was similar nationwide for long esophageal atresia, the connection between the esophagus called the anastomosis. There's a leak in almost a third of the cases and a stricture, again, in almost a third of the cases. Both of those kind of go hand in hand. If you have a leak, it may predispose to a stricture. And you can imagine if you have a narrowed esophagus, it causes problems with eating, uh, getting saliva down even. Reflux is present in about 60% of these patients, so it's very prevalent and rarely is you know, a reflux, anti-reflux procedure performed to uh, rectify that. They also have some esophageal motility, which can make it a very complex decision on whether to do that reflux procedure or not, but certainly they need medication and surveillance, and that's what we're uh, standardizing in our care. We don't have time to discuss these, but we're also working on quality of life. There's a Swedish investigator that I'm working with to try to validate a, the first disease-specific quality of life uh, questionnaire here in the U.S. And with that, uh, I will uh, pass this along to Dr. Murray again. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nod. Uh, and now it's time for our second special guest. Uh, Ms. Susanna Ludwig is also going to share her story or lived experience with the complicated esophageal atresia. So thank you, Susanna. Hi, good morning. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here today. 
Um, I'm just going to talk through uh, basically all of the medical interventions quickly that I've been through um, since birth, just so that you could see the trajectory of that. And then I will um, ultimately get to kind of what it's like to live with this now for me. Um, So I was born in 1971 uh, in Washington, D.C. My father, who is a pediatrician, was a resident at the time. Um, And I and I mentioned him because uh, my care is based on in some ways where he worked and he's important to the story. Um, uh, I was born eight weeks early, weighing only two pounds and um, with esophageal atresia, which we didn't know until I was born. Um, I then was operated on, well, I spent basically the first two years of my life kind of in and out of the hospital, um, back and forth, uh, initially fed through a G-tube, but then eventually, um, I, uh, was operated on by Dr. Peter Altman, uh, and assisted by Catherine Anderson. And they made, they created an esophagus from a piece of my stomach. They stretched it up to meet, uh, the top of my neck. And there was, like I said, many uh, sort of interventions and uh, dilations that were needed. But for the most part, uh, I lived a pretty, quote unquote, normal life from uh, around age two until um, age 21. As a child, I would often, the only way that I really, um, I would say, suffered looking, although I didn't realize it as a kid because it was just what I knew, was that the food would sort of sit in the pocket of my neck. There was a pocket created um, in my neck and the food would sit there and I would either have to push it down with my hand, which I learned how to do, or sometimes I would have to induce vomiting if it wouldn't go down. Um, But that did not happen that often. And I lived a pretty normal um, life. And other than having some food restrictions because certain foods were too um, chewy or hard to swallow, uh, it didn't really, you know, there wasn't any other medical interventions in between those years. Um, At age 21, just after I uh, graduated from college, like a month later, I had, I developed pneumonia. And when um, there was a chest x-ray, they noticed that my uh, diaphragm was herniated. And so we scheduled a surgery about two months after that to repair that hernia. And coming out of that surgery, my esophagus unfortunately collapsed. Um, and I could, I came, come, going into that surgery, I was able to swallow and coming out, I was not. Um, so we needed to do an immediate, another major esophagus surgery. I had a colon interposition uh, with Dr. Louise Schnaufer, who at that time um, at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, which is where my father was working. Um, so, and where my family at that point had moved from DC to Philadelphia. Um, so I was 21 and it, it did feel, you know, unusual to be a 21 year old at a children's hospital, but I got incredible care there. Um, it was a wonderful place to be. And I was hospitalized for around three weeks, um, and then recovered pretty well. So between then and 2005, uh, when I was 34, um, uh, I had a pretty, again, pretty normal life. Again, still the food sitting in my neck, but otherwise no major problems, no major issues. Um, in 2005, I noticed that I was having a lot of trouble swallowing and that I was having to kind of guide the swallowing much more than I had been. Um, and a chest x-ray noticed that the colon in my chest had sort of started taking up my chest cavity and was stretched out. Um, which is why I was having trouble swallowing. 
So at that point in early 2006, actually January of 2006, so it's around the anniversary of that time, um, I had, at that point, I had moved to New York because um, I used to be a filmmaker. So I moved to New York City to do my work here. Um, I had a repair to my esophagus done um, by Dr. Nassau Oturki at Cornell. Um, and he, he was, a, he was, did a great job. Um, the recovery was quite long and hard though, because there was a leak, um, coming out of that surgery. So I was sent home, um, with TPN and, um, had quite a long, uh, couldn't eat solid food for six to eight weeks. So that was pretty rough. Um, but a miracle happened in 2007. One year later, I gave birth. Uh, I got pregnant and gave birth to, uh, well, almost two years later, actually, because the end of 2007, um, I gave birth to my now 15-year-old son, Jack, uh, who, and my pregnancy was amazing, no complications. My birth was a natural childbirth. It all was uh, the most amazing, uh, empowering for my body, my relationship with my body experience. Um, Then a year later after that, in 2008, I had some unexpected bleeding ulcers, which I had never had before. Um, and had to be hospitalized and put on a liquid diet. Um, in 2010, I needed to have a second surgery to um, straighten out my esophagus. Again, it was sort of stretching out in my chest. Uh, and coming out of that, uh, again, I was having some issues with bleeding and um, was again put on a liquid diet and TPN for a number of months. Um, and a little shortly after that, uh, actually went to the Mayo Clinic to have a conversation about what some of the long-term care could be in regards to the symptoms I was having. Um, initially, we were discussing the possibility of having a stomach transplant altogether because of these bleeding ulcers, but uh, a po- another miracle happened. I've had many in my life. Um, and uh, the doctors decided to put me on a drug combination of a drug called Bethanicol that would help my stomach emptying. And I also uh, started taking another drug called Domperidone, which is not approved in the US, but um, I take both of them now four times a day um, to help my motility, which um, eliminates the reason that I was having the gastric bleeding. Um, I also take uh, Pantoprazole. I was taking a drug called Dexalant, but for some stupid reason, my insurance doesn't cover it anymore. So now I'm taking Pantoprazole twice a day, uh, again, also to eliminate the gastric bleeding. Um, so from so that episode with the Mayo Clinic happened in late 2010. So between 2011 and today, um, the my life, again, is a pretty normal life. For the most part, I do pretty well. The ways in which it uh, affects me are, I have had episodes and even a recent one about 18 months ago with gastric bleeding, Um, so that does happen. Um, I do unfortunately now have really serious asthma and also because my colon takes up, my esophagus takes up a big part of my chest cavity, my lung function is quite decreased. So, um, I'm operating on a daily basis with like 60% lung um, function and then add asthma on top of that. It's not a great situation. So I've had quite a few, um, aspirations from gastric reflux and then hospitalizations or trips to the ER uh, with asthma, which is to me the scariest part of 
any of this, to be honest. Um, I do have pretty serious reflux all the time. I don't have symptoms during the day when I'm standing up, but as soon as I lay down at night, um, I have chronic all the time symptoms. Um, and I do all the things I, uh, you know, I don't eat after a certain period of time. I don't eat all the typical things that you've heard about gas, about GERD. I I've done them. Um, the way that I've managed it most recently though, which is quite interesting is I'm working with a new doctor at Cornell, Dr. Reem Sharaya, who's a gastroenterologist and about every, I'd say between 10 and 12 months, I have a procedure where um, she injects Botox into my anastomosis to freeze it open. Um, and, um, that actually helps my motility for a number of months until it starts wearing off. And then I start suffering more. So in the first few months after that Botox procedure, which is a quite involved procedure because I can't eat for about five days before they put the Botox in, um, to clear out my system. So it's about a week of my life once a year where I have to do this. But then after that week, um, I actually feel quite well for anywhere from like, I'd say eight to 10 months, depending on how, how I'm doing. Um, and then I start having more and, and more and more intense reflux, uh, which shows up not only of just acid in back of my throat, but often vomiting. Um, so when I get, when I, when I start having more recurring episodes of that, then I know it's time to have another procedure and I schedule and get that done. Um, so a couple other quick things I just wanted to say, and then, and then I'll wrap it up, um, is some other things that have been helpful for me, uh, as an adult living with this is of course, restricting my diet, not eating things that, uh, cause more reflux. I recently, about a year ago, became gluten-free and actually that made a huge difference. I feel really good being gluten-free and I think uh, there's something there. Also, I've used acupuncture as a useful um, technique. Um, so I think it's it's good to, uh, with your patients, be, be open to that. Uh, I think that's a useful thing. And the last two things I'll say is, you know, it's an unusual circumstance to be an adult with this disease. Um, I've heard constantly throughout my life. I've never met anyone like you, Susanna, which is a good and bad thing. It's a, it's a miracle to be here, but also makes us feel, it makes me feel, I should speak for myself, makes me feel weird to feel that way. So um, I, I think that's important to find the balance of the curiosity and interest of working with patients like us with also the, um, the uh, sensitivity around that, I guess is the right word. Um, and I think also connecting with others who lived with it is an important thing to do. So in your work, if there's any way to create uh, emotional support for families going through the same thing, because I never met anybody until I was 22 who had this and I've met four other people in, in my life and that's made a huge difference. So thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all the work you're doing. Susanna, thank you so much. And if that doesn't convince you that it's a lifelong disease, I don't know what else would. I'm struck by many things that you said. One, I think you echo on the resiliency of like figuring out how to do it and using your hand. Uh, patients, patients do that, whether we teach them that or not. And that's amazing. And secondly, that the esophagus 
it's not just a tube. It's not just a place to get from here to here. It's got muscle, it's got function, it's got sphincters, it's got all those things. And I think that's a wonderful segue into our next speaker. Dr. Fink's going to talk to us about the future and some really cool things that she's doing. So take it away, Dr. Fink. Thank you so much, uh, Nicole. And uh, really thank you to Susanna and Marge. Um, it's been great hearing your stories and talking with you over these last few months. Um, I'm happy to be able to uh, bring this home and just show some of the great work that we're doing in the lab, um, investigating the esophagus and how we're studying this disease. I do have to um, say that I have two disclosures. I have a company called Esophidex and I am a scientific advisor for uh, BioStage. None of the products which I'll talk about here. Um, so my strategy in the lab has always been to study the disease at the bedside, think about new ideas, devices, and test it at the bench, and then hopefully bring it back to the bedside. And I'm going to show you some um, instances of that. What we've heard already is, is that the esophagus is not just a simple tube. It is um, maybe simple in design, but it's very complicated in function. Uh, initial um, congenital or acquired esophageal disorders can be devastating. And current surgical strategies are associated with a 20 to 40% incidence of morbidity and prolonged hospital stay. And the biggest thing that I'm studying is what happens when you can't get the ends together. So here is just a, a picture of a long gap esophageal atresia, meaning that there's such a long gap that um, it's not easy to pull the two ends um, and anastomosis. We do have some current surgical options. I'm not going to go through all of these because that's not the purpose of this lecture. Um, most of them involve taking um, organs from other parts of the body and pulling them up into place. And as Susanna had said, she had had a gastric pull-up, which is pictured um, here on the left. Um, and then it was uh, converted to a, a colonic interposition, which is pictured all the way up on the top on the right. The one on the bottom is your uh, standard Fokker procedure, which is where you're putting uh, tension on the two ends of the esophagus and trying to stretch them over time while the baby's in the NICU sometimes paralyzed and sedated, and then putting the two ends together. So as you can see, none of these are uh, not morbid. Our assumptions are always using native esophagus as the best. Um, there are often problems with reflux and esophageal um, stricture is the most common complication that we see. Um, just to hone in a little bit on the esophageal stricture, which is something Dr. Baker had mentioned, um, depending on the literature and what you read, uh, it can happen between 27 and 59% of the time. Most of the time it requires additional surgeries for dilation. And we know that that can um, have anesthesia risk in children because they're undergoing multiple repetitive anesthetics while you balloon dilate the area of stricture. And what you can see in this picture is an area of a stricture in the esophagus. And what they're doing is putting a balloon dilator um, past the area of the stricture and then they dilate that stricture open. And a lot of times you have to do it either every two to uh, four weeks um, for the first year, maybe sometimes two years of life. Um, so that gets to be quite excessive. Here's just another picture of what a balloon dilator looks like. In, two, in 2017, the FDA released, released an official warning statement that repeated long periods of exposure to general anesthetic and sedation drugs may negatively impact um, brain development in children younger than three years of age. So that caused some pause in us and how frequently we dilate the area of the stricture um, as we're helping the healing process. So as part of that, we've developed a balloon dilator that has a feeding tube on it. Um, and this was developed uh, with biomedical engineers at the University of Connecticut and um, Norton is currently producing prototypes for us. And the purpose was for us to be able to have a feeding tube and a balloon dilator whereby you don't need to take the patient to the operating room, you just use the regular feeding tube 
And then when it, it's two weeks or up, you uh, can inject contrast in the balloon and automatically dilate the area of the stricture and then deflate it and just keep your feeding tube going. So the, the biggest uh, benefit of this um, prototype is that there's no anesthetic um, and there's no trip to the operating room. We have currently um, done several uh, investigations in um, rabbit models. We have found that it works as we expect. However, we have to further develop uh, the prototype into having the balloon be a little bit um, stronger and um, optimize the dimensions and the length of the tube. So more to come on this, um, but this is uh, actually really work that we're, we're pushing. Um, and the goal would be to um, uh, manufacture and market it through another company. Um, the problem is this is an orphan disease. And what I'm learning in this process is that there's little interest from investors due to the small market size. So that was one thing, but that still does not address the problem of a long gap esophageal atresia. And this is where tissue engineering, which is something that I've been passionate about since, um, since 2002, really, um, and looking at how we can encourage the esophagus to regenerate itself. And can we create a construct that can restore, maintain, or improve this damaged tissue? So our concept is a scaffold with stem cells and then implantation. With their pioneering cell frame technology, the patient's native esophagus can be regenerated. Two weeks before an esophagectomy, stem cells are retrieved from the patient's abdominal adipose tissue. The stem cells are isolated and expanded. Then, inside a bioreactor, a porous cell span scaffold is incubated with the stem cells. The cells adhere to and interact with the scaffold. At the end of the esophagectomy, the cell span scaffold seated with stem cells is then implanted to reconstruct the patient's own esophagus. Preclinical studies showed that the stem cell seated scaffold possesses all of the necessary cues to start and guide the regeneration of a layered biological structure. This includes all the specialized cell types of the native esophagus with significant regeneration of the muscle and esophageal components of the nervous system. With their pioneering cell frame technology, the So this is work that's actively ongoing in the lab. Um, and I just like that, uh, that graphic because it kind of summarizes exactly what we're doing. Um, the scaffold at the end gets removed. And so what you can see is we've done uh, probably about 40 or 50 pigs now, whereby we're able to take adipose tissue, we're able to grow the stem cells, um, we're able to seed them, um, we're able to expand them and then seed them onto a scaffold. And then um, the seeded scaffold is cut to size. We're able to implant them. And here is, uh, you know, we have controls also where they're non-seeded scaffolds. We're able to implant them in a pig's esophagus after we do an esophagectomy. And then what we're able to do is, this was supposed to be an endoscopy picture. At 21 days, we go in, we have to stent the area that... Um, the scaffold is going into because the scaffold is not strong enough to stay open on its own. So we use a biologic stent, which you can see here on the right. And at 21 days, we go in and remo we remove the stent. And when we remove the stent, the scaffold comes with it and you can see it around the stent on the right. And if you look at the endoscopy picture on the left, what's left behind in that six centimeter gap that we've created um, is a fibrovascular tube that has regenerated. And what we can do is we've done um, pigs and kept them alive for up to 365 days. And what you can see here, so the control on the right is a pig that just had um, an esophagectomy, small gap, like two centimeters, with the two ends brought together primarily. 
And the pictures on the left are the gross histology of an open esophagus where we have put in a seated scaffold that has come out at 21 days. And we've watched it over time um, as the pig grows to see what happens. And what you can see, the important things to see here are that the white lining, um, you can see the ridge of, of tissue right here. Um, the, this grows over with epithelial cells. So this white lining is all epithelialization and you wanna see a stratified squamous epithelium on the esophagus. Um, and in the controls, you can see even where you have a little bit of a ridge of the um, area where you put the two ends of the esophagus together, there's still a, a defect in the epithelialization, which is interesting, which then grows up over time and you can see complete epithelialization. But when you look at the scaffold versus the control, there's no difference in this white lining. And so um, it's important to know that the epithelialization does occur. And then when you look to the right, what we're showing here is that you have an epithelial layer, but you also have a muscular layer underneath it. So the muscularis um, regenerated as well. And this is just endoscopy over time in the test animal and the control animal. This was supposed to work because I wanted to show some functionality of the esophagus and the implantation. And when you look at a control animal taking a barium swallow, which the pigs, by the way, love the barium versus a seated scaffold, you'll see that the contrast goes through um, just as well in either one. Um, and then the interesting thing, and this was done in conjunction with Dr. Moot in um, radiology, we did do imaging, cross-sectional imaging on all of the piglets um, to see where the blood supply is coming and what um, we were really looking at. And what you can see, this is a, a images on day 21. The, the really bright thing here in this sagittal is, uh, I'm sorry, this coronal is uh, the stent. You can see there's fluid in it because we have to feed the piglets right away. So we are actually giving them a liquid diet even after we do the esophagectomy and put in the scaffold. And you can see that there's tissue that's already grown around the area of the defect. And the important thing, the reason I'm showing this picture is because on the one on the right, you can see the aorta, which is the really bright um, um, circular thing here. You can see vessels sprouting off of it into the neovascular or the neo tissue that's growing. And so the, we have shown that the um, tissue that the stem cells that are, um, that we instill in the scaffold have VEGF in them, which is vascular endothelial growth factor. And it's probably what's causing the sprouting of the uh, neovascularization that we see in our construct. So we always say that we can do better because we still need to have uh, adequate um, neuronal ingrowth as well as optimizing our muscular, muscularis um, around the esophagus. And so we actually have an R01 grant that's going in now that is looking at some novel ways in which to create layers of the esophagus and then put them all back together over a 3D printed synthetic scaffold. So the scaffold that we used before is a polypropylene, I'm sorry, polyurethane that's nano woven. And you can't really optimize that to a patient specific diameter. Whereas the 3D printed technology you can, and you could actually take either a CT scan, a fetal MRI and create a, a, a construct that mimics exactly what that patient may need. And then we can um, take some cell layers with some extracellular matrix proteins, seed them with stem cells, seed them with stem cells that have some neuronal progenitors in it, and then use that as our scaffold um, and optimize all the different layers of the esophagus. So more to come on that. And these are just my conclusions. So my conclusions are that the long gap esophageal atresia can be, can be devastating surgically. Um, it can affect about 100 neonates annually. Current surgical strategies are not always the best. We need to optimize our current treatments, but also look to the future and see how we can have some innovative techniques to help us treat this. Um, I couldn't do any of this without the smart people that surround me. So here's just a picture of my lab team. 
Um, and I'm very thankful to Connecticut Children's for supporting uh, this research, as well as my uh, R01, um, my CT Innovations Grant, and our FBIR grant. Um, and in summary, esophageal atresia is a condition that affects our patients throughout their lifespan. Multidisciplinary esophageal atresia specialized teams are optimal for initial management as well as outpatient and longitudinal care. Standardizing our care in the perioperative period and beyond allows us to use evidence-based medicine and the ability to study outcomes to further esophageal atresia care. These patients need esophageal surveillance throughout life and it's evidence for best practice is not yet available, but we're working hard to create those. Anyway, back to you, Nicole, and thank you for this opportunity to present some of my research. Well, thank you to everyone uh, so much. I think this is um, a field that's so important. Um, and um, I think, uh, Dr. Fink, I think what you're doing is really cool and uh, love it. Um, we have just a few minutes uh, for questions, but I think most of them, oh, one thing I wanted to um, reiterate, uh, Susanna's story is really compelling and she only had a few minutes to tell us part of it. She has a podcast um, if you're interested in learning more and that's in the, uh, that's in the chat. Um, I believe most of the questions have been answered in the chat. I think one of the questions um, was for um, Susanna. Do you, do you know the name of the surgeon who performed your operation in Hartford in um, the 1940s? Well, that's from Marge. I'm not sure we still have Marge. Oh, I don't see Marge. Okay. I had asked her that question originally and I didn't, uh, she didn't remember. It was her brother, interestingly, that had made the connection and, and had her reach out to me. Um, and then uh, Dr. Zellneritis had asked, what is the incidence and prevalence of esophageal atresia patients with which we deal with the Connecticut Children's? I would say, and my group can keep me honest, we see about 12 to 20 a year, at least when I put the fellowship numbers together. And every year, every other year, we get a long gap that um, takes us a long time to, to uh, help get them fixed. Um, Dr. Sullivan had said, Susanna, Dr. Stephen Ludwig was a, a legend and a mentor during her years at CHOP from 1991 to 1995. I suspect this was your father. Yeah, that is my father. And, and I will said, definitely give him your regards. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll give you one minute back of your day. Uh, thank you all so very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.